start this morning by reading our vision statement together. Would you join me? Let's look up there and just read it together. The vision of City Church is to bring spiritual, social, and cultural renewal to the city of Evansville and beyond through a movement of people who are being transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Today we're in the final sermon of a series that we've been in for a couple of months called The Ghost. And for those of you who are new, uh, The Ghost is what many traditions within Christianity call the Holy Spirit, who I want to make sure that you understand is the power behind the transformation that we're talking about, that we would like to see, that fuels this movement that brings spiritual, social, and cultural renewal. This morning, for you to indulge me one last time, I'd like to ask you to turn with me again in your Bible to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. Uh, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. And I want to highlight again just a few things from this series. First, uh, the Holy Spirit is a person, not just a power. And as a person, he is the third member of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Second, when a person moves from unbelief in Christ to belief in Christ... As Nathaniel was talking about a moment ago, the Holy Spirit takes up residence in his, in his or her life. Theologians call this the indwelling of the Spirit. Every believer in Christ has the Holy Spirit within them, imparting the life of Christ to them. But then as we've seen over the last few weeks in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, the Apostle Paul says something that on the surface seems conflicting. Look again at the verse. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. We've been talking for the last few weeks about what Paul means when he says be filled with the Spirit, and we've been distinguishing between the filling of the Spirit and the indwelling of the Spirit. And the idea here is the issue of control. Just because you have the Spirit in you doesn't necessarily mean that you're letting the Holy Spirit control your life and change you from the inside out. And I've used a number of different analogies and illustrations to help explain this distinction between being indwelled by the Holy Spirit and being filled with the Spirit. If you haven't been with us, if you haven't heard some of those, uh, I would encourage you to go back to our City Church app uh, or to our podcast, whatever, to catch those. But let me just make one last attempt at explaining this distinction. There was an English butler many years ago uh, named Charles Patience. He worked at a very famous mansion in Grantham, part of Lincolnshire County in England. And it was the place that he was, the butler, was called Belton House. Belton House was built in the 17th century, uh, had been the home of, the, of Lord and Lady Brownlow, for those of you who may uh, care about that kind of thing. One of his jobs was to do a daily dust and polish around the house, including this big, heavy paperweight, which was, an actual, which was actually an old German bomb from World War II. One day, an army expert happened to be in the house, saw the paperweight, and he said to Charles Patience, he said, this is a bomb that hasn't gone off. It's live. We need to get a demolition unit in here immediately. And Charles Patience was absolutely astonished. He told the army expert, he said, I've been polishing this thing for decades once I even dropped it on my foot. Well, he ended up bringing in a demolition unit and had it destroyed. But I'd like for you to think about that for just a moment. All of those years, there was this explosive power in that house that no one understood or knew about. Now, it was a destructive power for sure. But I think you can see the analogy. Many believers in Christ have the Holy Spirit with all of his explosive, transformative power indwelling him, but they've never released his power into their lives. He's in them, 
But he's just sort of being used as a paperweight, so to speak, indwelled by the Spirit, but not filled with the Spirit. Now, the natural question then is, how can I be filled with the Spirit? In other words, how can I release his explosive, transformative power into my life? And we began to talk about this last week. And I gave you four words last week that describe what it means to be filled by the Spirit. Believe, drink, repent, and surrender. And I only got through the first two last week. And I want to get to the last two today, but just, just a quick review of the two. First of all, believe. We said last week that you must believe in Christ. You must be born again to be filled with the Spirit. Because before you can be filled with the Spirit, you must be indwelled by the Spirit. And you aren't indwelled by the Spirit if you have not been born again. But we also said that those of you who have believed in Christ need to see, need to believe that the Holy Spirit is the very best gift that God could ever give you. That unlike any material gift, He is, the Holy Spirit is, the missing piece to your soul. Everything that you've looked for in life or wanted in life is bound up in the Holy Spirit. And unless you believe that, you just won't care to be filled with the Spirit. So believe. The second word was drink. Paul makes a comparison here in Ephesians 5.18 between being drunk on wine and being filled with the Spirit. If you're drunk, you're no longer in control, but you are under the control of alcohol. Likewise, if you are filled with the Spirit, you are no longer in control, but under the control of the Holy Spirit. And so we said, drink deeply of the Spirit. And we saw that the way to do that was to fill your mind with truth. Think about and fill your mind with the great things that God has done for you in Christ. You know, there is so much death in our mind. Ideas what we have learned and that we take for granted are true and life-giving, but that are absolutely not true, and they are full of death. And we must unlearn the death that is in our minds and replace it with truth. And the only way to do that is to drink deeply of the truth of God. Let me say it again. I said it last week. I want to just say it one more time. I know many of you really don't have a time that you sit down and drink deeply of truth, in part because you don't know how. So as you can see in your program, I'm going to be teaching a two-week class, Thursday night, September 20th and 27th, how to have uh, an enjoyable devotional time in which you can learn to drink deeply of the truth of God. Now, there are some of you that kind of know how to have a devotional life, but you don't know how to have an enjoyable devotional life. You need to make sure that you come too. Two nights, two hours, over two weeks, that could absolutely change your life. I hope you'll put that on your calendar and come. Okay. That's what we talked about last week, believe and drink. Let's talk about the two words that we didn't get to last week, the word repent. Now, I want you to notice, you know, the word repent itself isn't in this passage in Ephesians 5.18, but it is certainly implied in this passage. The word repent shows up numerous times in the New Testament. Jesus often says it in the Gospels, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. The word's used often in other places in the New Testament as well. For instance, in this particular passage I want to show you, the Apostle Paul is writing to a church in Corinth in which many of the people in the church are involved in sexual sin of some kind. And he writes to them, and he says, I'm afraid that when I come again to visit you, I will be grieved over many who have sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual sin, and debauchery in which they've indulged. The word repent 
is the Greek word metanaeo. Literally, it means to perceive afterwards. Meta meaning after, naeo meaning to perceive in the mind. And the implication is that you're changing your mind about something. For instance, if I were to say, I believe that the Minnesota Vikings are going to win the Super Bowl this year, I would quickly repent and say, no, I was wrong to say that. The Dallas Cowboys are going to win the Super Bowl this year. That's repentance, you see. Would that have been a better illustration if I'd have said the Colts were going to win the Super Bowl? Would you have liked that better? It's a recognition, you see, that something that you said or did was wrong. And then you're going to take steps to correct the wrong. Now, as it relates to the Bible, the word repent means to turn from sin and to turn toward God. So for the person who's never believed in Christ, he or she has to repent from unbelief. Let's say you're here today. You've never come to a place where you have believed in Jesus Christ. You need to repent from your unbelief and turn in belief toward Christ. But those of you who have believed in Christ need to understand that repentance isn't just a one-time thing. At the beginning of the Protestant Reformation, the former Catholic monk Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the Wittenberg Cathedral door, and the first of those theses said this. He said, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he meant the entire life of believers should be one of repentance. In other words, he's saying that for believers in Christ, all of life is repentance. Why? Because even if you've believed in Christ, you know this, if you've been a believer in Christ for any period of time, there's still this part of you that moves toward worship of other things than Christ. For example... Depending upon the family you grew up in, maybe the culture that you grew up in, you might worship your family. Like you have this idea in your head, maybe it was placed there by your family of origin or, or, or if you grew up, in, as I said, in, in some other cultures, you might have this idea that family is the source of meaning and joy and happiness in life. Now, you know better than that because you believe in Christ, but still, sometimes you let that old idea take control and you become pathologically fixated on and controlling of your family. You worry, you obsess, you control, you try to fix, you try to prevent them from feeling any pain. You don't want your kids to miss out on any opportunity, so you make your life crazy busy to make sure that they're involved in everything that they can be in so that they can excel at everything, and you manipulate them and their lives because you have to get them to do the things that give you meaning and happiness in life. That's sin, you see. It's idolatry that leads to the specific sins of worry and obsessive anxiety and being controlling and manipulating and over-busyness and all of those things. Now listen, if you believe in Christ, even though you sometimes fall back into the sin of idolizing your family, praise God, your salvation is still secure. The Holy Spirit is still living in you. You can't lose Him. But you also, in those moments, aren't being filled with the Spirit. You're trying to be filled with your family. You're being controlled by an idea, you see. You're drunk with the idea that your family can save you. And so Paul says, don't be drunk with family. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. And so every time you find yourself obsessively fixating on family, you repent. 
You turn from controlling, obsessive, manipulating behavior, and you remind yourself that, the, that only Christ is worthy of your worship. And you put in motion a plan to stop this obsessive fixation on family. That's what repentance is. And you see, maybe part of that plan is counseling. Or maybe part of that plan is asking your family to help you realize when you're doing this, whatever. But that's what repentance is. And see, if you have any degree of self-awareness as a person, you know that you're constantly, even as a believer in Christ, moving back and forth between Christ and something or someone else, some other idea that you have about where life is and what you should and who you should worship. That's why all of life is repentance. Now, some of you are saying to yourselves, wow, that, I mean, that seems like a that seems like a terrible way to live. That sounds morbid. That sounds miserable. Like you're always focusing on what you're doing, what you're doing wrong. And the reason that you say that is that you have a religious view on repentance, not a gospel view of repentance. And what do I mean by that when I say you have a religious view of repentance, not a gospel view of repentance? Well, uh, the great uh, Puritan Stephen Charnock once wrote about the difference between religious repentance and gospel repentance, and he said that the difference between religious repentance and gospel repentance is that religious repentance focuses primarily on the justice of God, while gospel repentance focuses primarily on the goodness and the kindness of God. So when a religious person sins, it's a miserable experience. He says to himself, I've offended God's justice. I'm going to get it. I've really screwed up my life. Oh, my gosh, I'm really going to suffer now. If that person were really honest with himself, he'd have to admit that what he's really concerned about is himself. He's afraid of the consequences of his sin. He's afraid of the pain and suffering that he's brought into his life. Okay? But on the other hand, when a gospel, Christ-centered person sins, she says, I've, I've rejected the outstretched hand of my dearest friend. I've offended my Savior. How could I treat my good and loving God like this? Look at all of the things that he wants for me. How could I treat him like this? How could I break his heart? Do you see the difference? In religious repentance, you're afraid of your suffering the consequences of what you've brought into your life. But in gospel Christ-centered repentance, you repent not, not simply because you broke the rules and it's messing up your life, but you repent because you've broken his heart. You've broken God's heart, and that is unconscionable to you. And when you say, when you say my sin is against the goodness of God, it helps you hate the sin, not just the consequences of it. And it actually begins to change you from the inside out. I'm not saying that you never commit the same sin again, but it begins to change you slowly, sometimes, often very slowly, but surely. And in fact, just the, just the fact that you're not focused on yourself or, or, or you're not just focused on the consequences of the sin, but that you're focused on God's goodness, that's change in and of itself. Religious repentance and gospel repentance, very different. Now, there's something else that's different. In religious repentance, 
And I, uh, I can tell you that, that uh, I am guilty of this on, on many, many occasions. And I'll bet some of you are too. In religious repentance, you always end up trying to atone for your own sin. Why? Because in religious repentance, you're, you're counting on your own moral performance as the basis for your relationship with God. So when you sin, you uh, try to flagellate yourself. You beat yourself up. You loathe yourself. You talk about how awful you are to yourself. And maybe you even talk about how awful you are to other people too. What are you trying to do when you do that? What are you trying to do? Well, you're trying to get your good moral performance back. Because what you're actually trying to say is this. You're actually trying to say this. Okay, I thought I was a good person, and now I see maybe I'm not so good because of what I did. But I feel so bad, and I'm saying I'm so bad, and, I, and if I talk about myself about how I'm so bad, then surely only a good person would, there, would think they're so bad, right? Right? You see, in other words, you're, you're saying, surely God, other people, and I myself will come to believe because I'm beating myself up so much, I'm really okay. And I deserve to be back in God's good graces. Anybody here guilty of that? You don't have to raise your hand. But I'll tell you that I'm guilty of that. I'm guilty of that. That's my natural instinct in repentance, is to move toward religious repentance, not gospel repentance. Within a religious framework, repentance, is, is, it's a disaster. It's miserable. It's horrible. But when you learn gospel repentance, when you counter the instinct of religious repentance, and you learn gospel repentance, you find that although it seems unnatural and it seems counterintuitive, religious repentance is actually a joyful freeing experience. Because in the gospel, you realize that your moral performance has nothing to do with the basis for your relationship with God. The basis for your relationship with God is Christ's moral performance, not yours. You realize that he was made miserable on the cross so that you don't have to be made miserable. He was rejected so that you don't have to be rejected. He was stripped. He was beaten. He hung on a cross. He suffered so that you don't have to beat yourself up or try to prove that you're a good person. You realize that you mean more to Christ than all of the stars in the heavens and that he was glad to die for you. That's joyful, you see. And it's freeing because you realize that your sin is keeping you from all that God wants for you. It's keeping you from something good. And so when you repent, you're kind of, you're kind of ridding yourself of the weeds in the garden of your life that are keeping you from being the gorgeous, ripe fruit of being filled with the Spirit. And as I said, that changes you from the inside out. And it causes you to focus on the goodness of God, not on solely the justice of God and primarily the justice of God. There's a difference between the two. Repentance is part of being filled with the Spirit. 
It's recognizing I took things under control myself. I took them away from the control of the Spirit. I'm drunk with some other idea other than Jesus Christ. I'm idolizing, I'm worshiping something or someone else other than Jesus. And I'm going to change that. That's what repentance is. Believe, drink, and repent. But as I said, we're talking about gospel repentance, not religious repentance. Now, the obvious result of repentance is the last word. And it's the word surrender. And in fact, I will tell you that it's, it's actually, uh, it, it's very hard to separate repentance uh, from surrender. Uh, I've done it this morning because I'm trying to make it more easily understood, but the two really go hand in hand. You you can't repent without really surrendering. Okay? And again, I just let's acknowledge that the word surrender isn't in Ephesians 5.18, but it is implied. And you may want to write yourself a note next to Ephesians 5.18 to look back at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 19. Because in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 19, Paul's talking about the difference between life before Christ and life after Christ. And I want to show you what he says. He's talking about life before Christ here. He says, having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. Now, that phrase, have given themselves over, uh, it's, it's the Greek word paradidomai, which means to surrender. These are people who don't believe in Christ. Paul says that they have surrendered their lives to evil ideas which are resulting in evil behavior. But then I want, to notice, I want you to notice what he says next. He's talking now about believers. He says, you, however, did not come to know Christ that way. Surely you heard of him and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Now, all of this talk about putting off your old self and putting on your new self is in contrast with unbelievers and what they were doing, which was surrendering themselves to evil ideas. And so it's fair to say that surrendering is a part of being filled with the Spirit because you're surrendering control of some part of your life to the Spirit of God. It's the logical consequence of genuine repentance. You're not only saying that you were wrong to take control and do things your way, but also that you want to give control back to the Spirit of God. Now, I want to just give you an example of this, and I think it's a powerful example of this. And I also think it's a countercultural example of this. And I think that it's also a controversial example of this. woman by the name of Jackie Hill Perry. She's a, she's a writer. She's a poet. She's also a hip-hop artist. She wrote a book uh, called Gay Girl, Good God, the story of who I was and who God has always been. And in the book, she talks about her conversion to Christianity. She said that when she believed in Christ, she saw, and here's what she said, she saw that Jesus was better and more worthy of having everything that I thought was mine to own, including my affections. She goes on, shortly after that pivotal night, that's when she believed in Christ, shortly after that pivotal night, 
I was doing the painful work. Uh, listen to this. Of breaking up with my girlfriend. Her tears were too loud to listen to without regret. She knew how much I loved her, how childish my face got when she was around. To leave her, us, our love made no sense apart from the divine doing of God. She was both my woman and my idol. Though it was as painful as the extreme act of removing a part of the body, it was better for me to lose her than to lose my soul. I just got to live for God now, I said with a tear-broken voice. And a new identity was to come after I hung up. That's what repentance and surrender looks like, you see. Whether it has to do with believing the idea that your sexuality is part of your identity, or whether it has to do with the idolatry of family, or the idolatry of material things, or the idolatry of your career, or the idolatry of your comfort. Surrender is when you hand over control of an area of your life to the Spirit of God's control. And sometimes, often, usually even, early on in the experience of repentance and surrender, it will feel like that you're having to try to pry something out of your hands to give it to him. And it will early on come with tears and fear and gnashing of teeth, but it will get easier later on. I like how someone once described surrender. He said it like this, surrender is a willingness to be open to possibilities that we cannot imagine. The possibility that God has something better for you, that no matter how painful what you're giving up, God can fill that space and cause it to overflow with something else, something better. I want to say this as clearly as I can. To be filled with the Spirit does not mean that your life is perfect, because it will never be perfect this side of heaven. But it means that you're recognizing that you continually are taking control of your life in certain ways and then continually surrendering the control back to the Spirit. There's this thing that you keep doing. You keep pulling it back, but you keep giving it back over. You keep pulling it back, but then again, you give it back over. And slowly over time, it gets easier to hand it over and to leave it there. Slowly but surely. You may have heard someone say one time, sometime that repentance, it means that you, you stop doing what you're doing and you turn, and like it never happens again. Let me tell you something. That's an incredibly naive view of humanity. Because the things that you do are because you have death in your mind, ideas that you have lived with for years and years and years, and you have practiced it over and over and over again, and it has led to one behavior after another that is evil. And that doesn't change quickly. It changes slowly, but surely. Every time you keep, every time you bring it back and you give it back, it changes. And it gets easier and easier and easier 
over time. That's what genuine repentance and surrender looks like. Doesn't mean your life is perfect. But I also want to make the point that you cannot be in unrepentant sin, whatever type of sin that may be, that you refuse to deal with and be filled with the Spirit. You can't. That doesn't happen. Every one of us here have things that we need to surrender, things that are hard to surrender. It's hard to surrender control of your family. You think you know what's best. But you have to surrender your family. It's hard to surrender your career. It's hard to surrender a boyfriend or a girlfriend who you know isn't right for you. It's hard to surrender sex with someone to whom you're not married. It's hard to surrender your money, your future, your hopes, and your dreams. But let me just close with this. God isn't asking you to do something that he hasn't done himself in the person of Jesus. Just a few verses before Ephesians 5.18, the apostle Paul wrote this, and we saw this a few weeks ago. He says in verse 1, chapter 5, verse 1, Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, And walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. That phrase, that phrase, gave himself up. It's the same Greek word that we saw earlier, paradidomai, that means to surrender. What you're called to do, Jesus has done. The King of kings and the Lord of lords surrendered his life for you. And he was raised again from the dead and ascended into heaven so that he could send his spirit to dwell within you and who could unleash his explosive power in you and transform you into something glorious, into someone that you can't possibly imagine right now and who, when combined with a community of others who are being transformed by the spirit, can change a city. And so as loved people, Surrender control of the areas of your life that you know you're keeping, that you know that are keeping you from becoming all God has for you. Surrender those to the Holy Spirit. Repent and surrender and be filled with the Spirit. Believe, drink, repent, surrender, and be filled with the Spirit. And let the Spirit of God unleash his explosive, transformative power into your life. And I want to just say one last thing. I promise you, I, can, I, I promise you. No matter how hard it is to surrender, whatever it is that you're thinking about, whatever it is that you know right now, right now, you know, you need to surrender. No matter how difficult it is, no matter how big it is, I can promise you, that the Spirit of God can fill that hole with something far better. And your cup will runneth over. I promise you that. Would you bow your heads with me for prayer? And in the silence of the moment, would you just consider... What is it in your life that perhaps you need to repent this morning of and surrender? Is it a person? Is it a career? Is it a thing? Is it 
material possession. You know, your mind is filled with death because you live in a you live in a world full of death. And so you have latched on to ideas that need to be surrendered. What is it? What is it? Could you just surrender it this morning? It's hard. It's like prying it out of your fingers, I know. But would you just, this morning, just in this moment, just surrender? And I'm telling you, you may end up taking it back in five minutes. Okay, but just surrender now. And then five minutes from now, surrender it again. Holy Spirit, would you, um, would you cause us as people to believe, to believe first in the Lord Jesus Christ, to believe that you are the greatest blessing that we could ever be given, that if there was something better, something material that was better, God would have given it to us because he's good, he's a heavenly father, he loves to give us good things, but, but he gave us you because you are better than anything else that he could have get, ever given us. And Lord, would you, Holy Spirit, would you cause us to want to drink of you, the truth of God? And would you convict us this morning and move us to repentance? And then, Holy Spirit, would you, would you just give us the desire this morning to release, to surrender these things that maybe you even right now are sort of pressing in on us? Just give us the ability to release those things, to surrender those things to you. And then would you fill those places in our lives to all the fullness of God and transform us, just release your power in us and in us as a church so that we can be a part of bringing renewal to this city. We pray these things, Holy Spirit. And Lord Jesus, we pray these things in your name. And Father, we thank you so much for sending your Son, Lord Jesus Christ, for us. We pray these things. Amen.